Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. We're here with you again, still alive and well, thankfully, at the moment. It has been a trying time for everyone, but we're so glad that you're choosing to spend some of your time social distancing listening to our show. I'm Kennedy Cooper. I'm Rachel Kahn. And I am Brandon Buchanan. And joining us today, we have a special guest, Artie Krybik. She is a councilwoman in New Jersey. She is running for Congress for New Jersey's 5th District and just a generally very interesting person, but I'll let her take it from here on that front. Artie, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, well, we're very glad to have you. If you want to just start off by just telling the audience who you are and a little bit about you, since they may not know anything about you yet. Where are you from? That kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm happy to do that. My name is Arthi Kreibig, uh, and I am trained as a neuroscientist. I am a mom. I'm an activist. I am elected council member in Glen Rock, New Jersey, um, and I'm really proud uh, that I am running for Congress in New Jersey's 5th District. I am primarying a conservative House Democrat, um, and we have a campaign that has lots and lots of grassroots power. We're building a whole bunch of momentum. And I can't wait for y'all to see me uh, win the primary. Absolutely. We're very excited. And uh, let's just talk a little bit about that conservative Democrat to get us started. Josh Gottheimer could probably be described as one of the most conservative Democrats currently in Congress. I have to jump the line here a little bit, Kennedy. Yeah. Because I just have to ask a really compelling question that I think is on everybody's mind. Josh Gottheimer endorsed Michael Bloomberg to be president of the United States. <laughs> oh my gosh, the morning after the first debate. I can't even, I don't oh. even understand. It was completely, you know, mind boggling. <laughs> At time between when Mike Bloomberg started giving people money, like, I don't know how much, how comfortable you want to be saying this, the time between when Mike Bloomberg started giving people money and the time that he actually had to face a public forum was a while, like two and a half weeks when politicians yeah. just thought they could say and do and get away with anything. They all thought they were at Disney World. Do you speculate as someone who is in his district that he is a little bit embarrassed now that he has to go to the real world of his constituents? And um, again, I'm being very gentle here discuss his choices for who he thought was appropriate to be the president of the United States? Or you think he's doing all right? He's doing well emotionally. You tell us. Here's the thing. Um, I think that he is so tone deaf that he doesn't understand why that choice is as mind boggling as it is. Right. And I think that is the crux of why he can't be our elected Congress member anymore. You know, I don't think he understands. I think that what he I think that he thinks that, uh, you know, he was doing really well by endorsing his buddy Bloomberg. Um, I think he really does believe that somehow that this was the right choice. Um, and I think because of that, it's clear more than ever <laughs> that this is not the person we want in NJ5. Artie, this is a, a question that sounds disingenuous, but I'm honestly asking, are there black and brown people in New Jersey 5th or no? <laughs> Yes, there are. I happen to be brown myself. Um, there are absolutely, right? I think, and this is exactly the point though, right? Because we have folks who are, um, even though we are right outside the George Washington Bridge, right? We are hop, skip, and a jump away from New York City. I grew up in New York City, actually, back in the day in Queens. And I understand what that legacy of stop and frisk and all the problematic policies that Michael Bloomberg brought to the table and brought 
you know, mm-hmm. r- ruined lives. And as we were hearing even more about them, once he once he announced, there was just a deafening silence, really, uh, on part of, you know, my Congress member. And really, he doubled down into saying, yes, absolutely. He was the first one who came out after that first debate where, frankly, Bloomberg did terribly, to say the least. Um, and he came out, he was on the talk shows the next morning, uh, basically, you know, proudly saying he endorsed Bloomberg. Um, oh, no. And exactly. I I really have to say, too, it's the funniest part that it was after the first debate because and this is to give no compliment really to Michael Bloomberg. I absolutely cannot stand the guy. Anybody who's listened to this show much knows how much we cannot stand him. If you were going to like give give him some props after one of the debates, it would be the second one he was in, not the first where he just looked like an absolute clown. Yeah. He completely did. Yeah, it was it was really I mean <laughs> for him to do as badly as he did and to have my opponent, you know, sit there and or and endorse him the next day considering his path, considering Bloomberg's path, which you know, is sexism, racism, uh talking about corporate donors like all of it. Uh it's it's <laughs> It, it was really laughable. I just, you know, I couldn't understand why he was doing what he was doing and why he kept doubling down on it. Um, and he, you know, and he and he clearly was committed to completely the wrong choices, philosophically and uh, frankly, practically, uh, as it turned out. I mean, that, you know, that presidential run didn't last very long, although spent lots of money. So it lasted too long, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. What really <laughs> grabbed me is that when people do these things that are like, I won't use the word disingenuous. Maybe that is his genuine ideology. But it seems to me that when you see something like what we saw during that debate, and then people come out after that debate the night after to say, oh, he did a great job. Right. Against the evidence of everyone's eyes and ears, it is not just a symbol of their ideology, but a symbol to campaign donors in pharmaceutical industry, campaign donors in you name it, police unions, campaign donors in we could go on and on that here's a person that is willing to play ball despite the evidence of people's eyes and ears. And that is really dangerous when you're asking for someone to represent the people of the district and the actual needs of the constituents that live there. Can you talk a little bit maybe about how friendly has Representative Gottheimer been to corporate interests in your district? I mean, that's exactly where, you know, that's exactly the point of uh, where I think our representative, where his interests seem to lie and where his votes seem to align with rather than the people, right? So when you talk about needing somebody who, frankly, for the fifth district, we deserve somebody who's going to be standing up to billionaires like Bloomberg, like Trump, right? Instead of falling in line with them and voting in their best interest instead of ours. So my you know, my opponent has a, uh, it's a big war chest, uh, you know, something like $7 million. And a lot of it comes from corporate PAC money. He is the number two recipient of money from the Wall Street real estate sector. I think he's behind Kevin McCarthy and ahead of Paul Ryan. Um, that is not where I would ever want to be um, on any lists um, related to that. Pretty bad. Yeah, I <laughs> I think so. And I think you can draw a line from that to, uh, you know, his vote uh, multiple times to gut Dodd-Frank regulations, right? 
Um, and these are the kinds of safeguards that we fought for after the last recession um, that we need in place um, moving forward to protect people, to protect everyday people, to protect our working families. Um, and you, I think you can pretty clearly see where that's coming from. I mean, some of the things that he stands for are always from the perspective of businesses and corporations rather than from the perspective of the people, right? Um, and to me, that is not what frankly a real democrat does that is not frankly what we elect our political leaders to do at any level so i'm a council member in Glenrock and, and the city council and my duty um and i represent who what i represent who i represent are my constituents which are my people and and that's exactly what we need you know this is a government of the people by the people not corporations you know citizens united one of the worst things to happen to our political system so when you go back and look at the kinds of things that he stands for and that he's always stood for you know his tagline is is lower taxes jersey values i think his jersey values have a lot to do with corporate values oh. rather than you know what we care about which is climate change, which is healthcare, which is making sure that we are fighting for <laughs> fighting for things for everyday people in general. Um, you know, uh, there's a clearly a direct distinction between who he is and the kinds of things that he's fighting for and who I am and what I believe in. I'm not politics as usual. I'm definitely not the status quo. I am refusing corporate PAC donations because I believe in doing this the right way, which is to be beholden to people uh, and not corporations um, and to be able to act with integrity. Um, and I don't know how you can do that if you are in the pockets of corporations. I think that you're always going to be looking at and really shoring up interests based on corporations rather than from the perspective of people who voted for you uh, at the end of the day. Um, and I think this is exactly why bold solutions that we need, um, structural changes that we need, which include universal healthcare, Medicare for all, which include climate justice, which include really centering around the people. I mean, the reason they've been stymied um, is because of the influence of corporate money in politics. At a time when we are facing like an unprecedented public health crisis, yeah. slogans like lower taxes, Jersey values feel so cheap and so cardboard and so disconnected to like the real crises that regular human beings are going through that it is almost laughable. I don't know how much you want to like laugh and agree with that. I'm just saying it for our audience. And we can continue with another question. No, you know, it's not just laughable, right? Like when it first came out, which was years ago, I, you know, I remember not knowing very much about it and going, huh, that slogan seems really disingenuous, right? That slogan, I'm not quite sure where this dude is at, but really we need a dumb, you know, I'm, I'm going to support him. We had, we had a terrible Tea Party conservative, you know, in our district for multiple years before that. And so when he first came on the scene in 2016 and he won, you know, I will say, and I've said it before, he was my first non-presidential lawn sign, right? On my lawn, because I thought, great, we need to get rid of this other guy that we have. This guy seems to fit the bill. He's going to be fighting for us. This is, you know, this is where it is. The 2016 election, which as we know, has been uh, really momentous in a lot of our lives, definitely in my life, for sure. At that point, when I thought Hillary was going to win and she didn't and Trump won, which was devastating on 
multiple levels for us, uh, for me personally, for us as a family, and changed really the course of what I did with my life because I really felt like I needed to step up quite a bit more after that. But the glimmer of hope that we had in NG5, right, was that we had this guy that we had flipped the fifth. He won by two points. We had supported him. We thought, great, at least we're going to have somebody who is fighting for us in Congress. So he went to Congress from his very first vote, which was to roll back Obama regulations on the uh, environment and health. And he rolled them back, very first vote, which was completely unnecessary. He stood with, you know, he was one of, I think, four or five Democrats who stood with a whole bunch of Republicans. It was going to happen anyway. There's no reason for him to vote for this. From that very first vote, which was really disappointing and, you know, puzzling, he's just gotten worse um, and gotten to the point where, frankly, I, as a former supporter, feel betrayed um, by the support that I'd showed him. And so do a lot of us here. So do a lot of us who were formed as grassroots groups, particularly after 2016. So he voted for border wall funding. He voted, you know, just recently, he voted against the Iran war powers resolution. I mean, he was one of eight Democrats to do this. And the only other New Jersey Democrat who voted the same way he did is now a Republican, which I think tells you a lot about where you go with this. Um, he refuses to use the phrase climate change when he's talking to our constituents in, in NJ5, which is as a scientist, as a human being, I don't understand that. You know, if you, can't, if you can't even define the problem, how are you actually going to help us? And the straw that broke the camel's back for me, the reason um, why I went all in on this primary challenge was, so in June of last year, right, we were, we understood the, that the immigration crisis was here. We were starting to see all of these news reports of what we're doing at the borders. Uh, you know, we colloquially, we're calling them kids in cages. But, you know, what we're doing to, frankly, rip apart families um, and the policies that we're putting in place um, that, that CBP and ICE were essentially leading the charge on this. And a couple of weeks after that, there was an emergency appropriations bill that came up in the House and the Senate. And he led the charge to make sure that there was no accountability, that there were no guardrails put into the House version of that bill. And when he did that, the bill passed and there were millions of dollars going to CBP and ICE weeks after, not even two weeks after we learn about what we're doing to kids, what we understand to be a humanitarian crisis the United States is responsible for on our own soil, at our borders. And when he did that, he made me morally complicit in that decision making. And as a former supporter, I felt that deeply. And I realized I cannot be morally complicit in this kind of decision making. This cuts across party lines. This is not how we treat people. You know, I have spoken to so many folks who have different opinions on comprehensive immigration reform and what that means and what that means to them. But the one thing we agree on is that this is not how we treat people at the border. We don't do the kinds of things that we're doing right now, you know, to fuel the humanitarian crisis that's going there. And to be honest, when he did what he did and what we, when we realized what was happening, that was the moment. That was really the event that, to me, <laughs> underscored the full responsibility, the moral responsibility that we have as constituents to really vet our elected leaders and hold them accountable and, frankly, to have the courage to challenge them. And that's really where this, you know, where this campaign began. And I'm so proud to say that this is not something that is crazy. This is not something where people, you know, feel as if um, this is coming out of nowhere. Um, the sense of betrayal, the sense of holding people accountable, the sense of coming together and demanding better really resonates with folks across the district. So I'm really proud of the fact that having this campaign is, is letting folks have a voice 
and how and who they want to be their elected leaders. I think it is so important to have these conversations in our communities. You know, we for so long have basically felt like we can't do anything that like we've like internalized it. We're not even willing to talk about doing something sometimes. And I think seeing people like you stand up and push back, you know, publicly and directly the way you are, I think that can really be inspiring for people and can create a lot of momentum. Look, we I've been frustrated with him for a long time. Um, and we've talked, you know, I've tried to talk to him. I mean, we know, <laughs> I know who he is. He knows where my house is. I actually in 2018, um, had done a big get out the vote rally for him in my backyard where, you know, we had 40 to 50 people show up. Um, he knows me as a council member. And, you know, throughout the time, really tried to speak with him, hold him accountable on a, you know, at a personal level, but also, you know, with the organizations that I belong to, with the groups that I belong to. And really, it was most patronizing. It was sort of a pat on the head going, you don't understand how things happen in the political world, um, which is, you know, particularly interesting uh, when you have somebody who is frankly a neophyte, you know, going into, you know, he had hadn't held elected office before. Um, he was elected in 2016. But it was also that he was unwilling to really stand on the kinds of values that we as Democrats, that we as you know people need for him to stand on. Uh, and the frustrating part about me about it for me before I ran, before I decided to primary him was the fact that whenever I spoke with establishment folks about this or people in general, it was exactly what you just mentioned. It was, well, what's the use? Well, who's going to stand up? He's the best we can do. And especially in the era, especially post-Trump election, I felt deeply like I don't understand how we can all just sit here and say this is the best we can do and why we don't fight any harder to have real you know, why we're not holding folks accountable for their actions and then making sure that we rally around the kinds of values we really want reflected. I mean, why are we acting so helpless and so essentially as if we have given up? This is the time for us to come together and demand more and demand better. Just kind of throw up our hands in the air and say, well, I guess this is all that we're going to be able to do. Because frankly, you know, to me, especially with things like climate change, um, where New Jersey is one of the most vulnerable states to climate change. It's about our lives. It's about the survival of the species. It's an existential crisis. And having, you know, having elected leaders who stick their heads in the sand or who really are only about making the income inequality we have uh, even worse, who are really only about shoring up things for corporations. This is essentially the demise of democracy. This is the demise of who we are as people. And if we don't stand up now, when are we going to stand up? I think that's very well put. And I think also on the subject of kind of standing up and also like you've touched a couple of times on the devastation of the Trump election. One of the most devastating aspects of the Trump election has been empowering white nationalism. Mm -hmm. And while you have a, a number of things on your campaign platform that, you know, are sort of resonated by a lot of other progressives running, one thing you have that's actually somewhat unique is a strong stance on doing something about white nationalism as a core issue of your platform. Can we get into that a little bit in terms of especially like, how do we deal with a menace that's so asymmetrical and distributed in the way that modern white nationalism is? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to tell you a story about, you know, 
about really what made me get into politics post-2016, which addresses why this is part of the core of, of my platform, really. So what happened in the 2016 election, uh, my, I have two sons who were eight and 11 at the time. And so we've always been a, you know, a family interested in politics. We've always done, you know, little things, right? What we called little things before then donate, have signs, um, knock on doors for big presidential campaigns. We used to live in Philadelphia, you know, Pennsylvania is a big swing district. So we got a lot of that um, in there. And so for 2016, after after the primary, my my boys were interested. Uh, we were excited to to try and get, you know, who we thought was going to win first one president, etc. Um, and so even including that, so we had volunteer and the day of the election, um, we'd gone to Pennsylvania to knock on doors and get out the vote. <laughs> And all three of us were wearing, you know, blue pantsuits, matching pantsuits, even my, even my kids. Um, and we clearly thought the the outcome was going to be different, right? We were very excited. We we worked hard all day, tried to get folks to come out, came home to what we thought was going to be a celebration. And it really wasn't. Um, and that was particularly difficult for me as a parent to try and explain to my kids what happened. And, it, you know, ad- it really adequately hasn't been explained um, in lots of different ways. And then in the weeks, days and weeks that followed the election, that followed Trump's victory, particularly in our area, we had folks that were emboldened to come out, yeah, to come out, you know, in public um, with things that they hadn't said before, um, or at least hadn't said quite as loudly before, right? And, you know, a couple of weeks later, it was my eight-year-old who was upset. So I think I mentioned before that I'm an immigrant came here when I was 11. Being a naturalized citizen is something that is a point of pride for me and my and my family. This is something that we talk to my kids about, about how we chose to be here, how we chose to be American, what this country is, you know, means to us. And my eight-year-old um, came to me very upset and he was worried. And he was worried genuinely that I was not going to be able to be his mom anymore in America, that I was somehow going to be deported. And in particular, that my parents, his grandparents, uh, were going to be much more targeted um, because they, you know, they they look more brown. They they have much more of an accent than I do. Um, and he understood what that meant because he had seen that out. And to me, that was devastating <laughs> to hear, you know, this. And I still get very emotional when I think about it because, you know, it was not only the fact that I, as a parent, was supposed to protect him and that, you know, having lived here for decades, I felt as if I had made that my family had made a home for ourselves here, that we were American. And to understand that perhaps even my child understood that that was somehow alienating and felt, you know, a little bit of how I felt when I first came here was really not something that I thought I would ever have to. So but for me, really, the fact is that I know I'm lucky and fortunate enough to be able to give him a hug and say, it's okay, I'm not going to be deported. Here are all the resources we have. Here's why this is never going to happen. But the fact is, (laughs) You know, for me, it was just a visceral reality, understanding that this is not the case for so many people in our community. This is not the case for too many people. Um, And frankly, in my community, there's so many of us who are feeling so much more insecure, so much more vulnerable, either because, you know, of, of the way they speak or the way they look or who they love. And thinking about 
frankly, of the courage my parents showed moving to a different country, leaving, you know, all the things that they knew back home, the courage that my grandfather showed in being a freedom fighter in India, thinking about that and, and thinking about how my child was feeling and how they were feeling and how insecure folks in my community feeling. Uh, that was really when I realized that a lot more than I'd been doing before. And I really just needed to step up and take whatever action I could as many times as I could um, to make sure that another child hopefully wouldn't be feeling quite the same way as mine was. So to me, when I, you know, talk about issues of white supremacy, issues of hate, they're very personal in a lot of ways, because I do understand that, that it's not just an abstract statistic that we have these spike in hate crimes, um, that we have folks who feel much more vulnerable, um, that perspective. And of course, knowing how lucky I am, I still understand that this is the bedrock of security for so many of us in our community. And what we need to do is really be a lot more vocal and take a stand. And we need to go beyond just saying white supremacy is, you know, folks with pitchforks and, you know, swastikas everywhere. That really is an insidious force um, in our society. And we need to have really difficult conversations about systemic racism, about systemic white supremacy, about the role of all of us, including those of us who are minorities and immigrants. And some of us might be able to be more privileged, right? They're minorities and they're minorities. And I've been a beneficiary of that, while at the same time, a target of different attacks. So it's it's up to all of us to be able to articulate that and for us to be able to stand up, understand what our personal roles are, and then also call it out and be able to support effort to dismantle it. Because if we can't talk about it, honestly, and with these difficult conversations, we're never going to dismantle the kinds of things that we need to. And it really is beyond just, you know, some people in red MAGA hat. Um, It really is about all of us at all different levels. I really can't imagine having to live with that kind of fear, you know, and I I know that is itself this massive privilege. When I hear parents talk about these kinds of things, I know for me, it hits me in this visceral level of like, if it was my child, and I think about the kinds of things that I would be willing to do for my child. And like you were saying, the kinds of things that you are doing for your child, you're taking on this huge project, you know, I, I think we should all and especially, you know, white women, when I say this, be thinking about what we would be doing, what we would be giving and give that same amount to this. You know, we can't just sit here and let families get torn. No one should ever have to feel that way. No one should have to be afraid of that. So I want to thank you for saying that and um, bringing that up here. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it, it's it's not easy, right? You know, even for me, we came to this country with this promise of America, right? With this idea of America, you know, the, the whole mythology that that surrounds the American dream. And I remember that really well. I remember getting off, you know, the plane. I remember, you know, trying to hold on to my kid, you know, kid brothers as and, you know, my youngest brother at the time, I think he was, I don't know, less than five, maybe, and, and asking me if he was going to recognize my dad. So my dad had come here a couple years earlier to save up money and bring us all over. And I remember like the hope and the excitement and the anxiety that I felt coming to this country. And really the fact that my parents believed in that promise. 
And the thing is, we were incredibly fortunate, right? So we were poor, uh, but we had so many opportunities that we were able to take advantage of and that we were able to do all the kinds of things that, you know, we needed to do or that we that we were we were given opportunities to do so that we were actually able to fulfill these dreams that we had. I mean, I wanted to be a scientist since I was a little girl and I was, you know, it was not something that was popular at the time, um, but I was able to do that. But it took far too long for us, for me to understand really, uh, and it was, you know, not until college, I would say, to understand really that this the case for everybody, right? Like that there are systems in place that make sure that not everyone is able to take advantage of these opportunities and that, that there are opportunities that are given to folks that have nothing to do with how hard you work. And to me, that's not the America, right? That I was promised. That was not the America of, of my dreams. Um, And so while at the same time as I am patriotic and I love this country and I deeply, deeply do, um, I, you know, I waited until I was adult to be able to be naturalized because I wanted it to be my choice as an adult. I also see clearly the deep flaws we have in our system. And I believe so much in the way we have come together in, in in the premise of America. And I feel as if we can do better and that we have to. We have to be more equitable as a society because if we don't, then the whole thing collapses. And I believe so much in that pure, in that pure idea of coming together as a society that I'm willing to do whatever I can to make sure that, that comes true. I want to talk a little bit about, generally on this show, we talk about systems more than we talk about individuals. Sure. But in this situation, I want to talk about an individual who I think has contributed to this climate more than anyone. And I think that's the president of the United States right now, who is yeah. Donald Trump. Your opponent is a censure guy because that's like the yep. <laughs> perfectly tuned uh, fence straddling position on this. Uh, can you tell me where you stood on impeachment as an item? Uh, can you also talk about ways that we can going forward? Because the impeachment trial ended a couple of months ago, uh, hold the president accountable in the future or maybe after his administration is over? For sure. I think, look, I mean, impeachment is, to me, it was, I, I couldn't understand why it took so long, right? To get to the point where we are, you know, even talking about impeachment as a reality. I mean, I read the Mueller report. It was clear then, it's been clear for a long time that there are high crimes and misdemeanors that have taken place. To me, the fact that my elected Congress member would actually not comment on this forever, would say this was not a problem, was really symptomatic of, you know, his blindness to our reality. You know, I think that you need to commit and you need to speak your values. And if this is not your value, then you are not somebody who represents most of us in NJ5 or frankly, in the United States. So, he, you know, there are definitely reports that talk about how he basically agitated for censure, which is the opposite of what you're supposed to do as an elected official, particularly when you have a constitutional duty for checks and balances at the least. And agitating for something like censure or trying to promote that um, is really letting our president off the hook with barely a slap on the wrist for the kinds of reckless disregard he has shown, not just for the Constitution, but for literally our lives. Uh, And you can see that with COVID-19 here. Um, the kind of response or lack of response um, that he's had, the lack of preparedness. I mean, this is not something that we couldn't see coming, 
right? We, we, knew, we knew the kinds of things that would be happening in the United States. Public health experts and scientists have been calling for this for a long time. And he, in just typical form for who he is, he muzzles the experts. He down, you know, he, he turns the truth upside down. Um, he uses his power to cost us human lives and with just a reckless disregard for what we need to do. I am so glad to hear you actually say that because I I don't want to drag you into a tactical discussion, but I feel like there is not enough discussion of the actual human toll of the president's decisions that he's made over the last month, because like, I really do think that he has cost people their lives through his actions this month. And usually it's just things that he does on Twitter that are embarrassing, but these are like real decisions that have really harmed people. And if he had taken these decisions more seriously a month and a half ago, we wouldn't necessarily be in the situation that we're in right now. Absolutely not. I mean, look, in Bergen County, uh, New Jersey, where I am right now, we have the most amount of cases that we have for COVID-19 positive cases that we have in New Jersey. And these are just the folks who have been right? So we, I think, just passed, I think, maybe the thousand case mark uh, yesterday. And the hospital where my where my husband works um, has the most amount of cases in Bergen County. And I have so many friends and family members at the front lines, you know, of healthcare workers that I've been seeing and hearing at least secondhand, um, and some, in some cases firsthand uh, when I've gone to visit, um, the kind of toll that's taking just in our healthcare facilities. You know, let's talk about our long-term living um, facilities, each one of which has multiple cases of COVID-19 positive cases. Let's talk about essential workers. Let's talk about folks who are working in grocery stores and who have to go to work and who don't have a choice and and what's happening there. Let's talk about the fatalities that we hear about, the deaths in our communities. I mean, this is a deep collective trauma that we are going to be experiencing for a long time. And I lay the blame squarely at the feet of Trump. <laughs> this is just as a scientist, as somebody who understands, you know, disease mechanisms at the least. We saw this coming a long time ago. The fact that we weren't prepared with protective gear, the fact that even now, ridiculously, ridiculously, we are sewing masks um, because to give to hospital workers because they don't have enough masks is deeply shameful. We should all be embarrassed. We should all be angry. We should all be wondering what is going on and why we can't do more. It's interesting that you say all this because, you know, Josh Gottheimer says that what New Jersey is doing is working and that things are kind of progressing in the right direction. Um <laughs> Not just that, he has a CNN op-ed that says we can't leave the blame at any one person. Clearly, I disagree with that 100%. I mean, if, if that is not completely divorced from reality, I don't know what is. You know, a pandemic, of course, the root cause of the virus might be something, but, but what happens afterwards, that is a human systems failure. That is not a failure of mother nature. This is not a tsunami. We were fully understanding what happened. We knew exactly how things were going to happen because see, we saw it happening in Italy. We see it, we saw it happening in Iran with, you know, when they had an 18% fatality rate months ago. Uh, we saw it. We had first responders here that were worried about this. We, you know, we saw this coming. And the fact that I have an elected official who will do anything he can to protect uh, not of his own party is 
you know, completely mind boggling. He had an op-ed, another op-ed recently uh, with the co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus, who's Republican, really talking about what we need to do now to get out of the pandemic is really concentrate on businesses and corporations and how we can give them essentially bailouts so that, you know, they can, they can start work again. And to me, I don't understand that. You know, I have friends who have lost jobs, who have lost hours, who have lost health care in the middle of a health crisis. You know what they're worried about? They're worried if they can make a rent or a mortgage payment. They're worried about going outside because they're worried if they catch COVID-19 or if they get really sick from it, that they can't afford to go to the hospital. They're worried about the bills. They're worried about how they're going to survive beyond this two weeks or, you know, the next two or three weeks or whatever their savings are. That's what they're worried about. You know, that's what we should be worried about, trying to help people, not sit there and say, let's give more bailouts so that we are hoping in some way, shape or form that's going to trickle down. Look, trickle down economics, frankly, hasn't worked for decades. We have evidence that this is true. Um, to go after the same is really the definition of insanity here. What changes structurally do you think are most important to make after we hopefully make it through this to prevent the next pandemic from affecting us so harshly? We need, I think everyone can understand, we need to have a single pair system where we don't have, where we are covering everybody, where somebody does not have to be afraid of getting health care, where somebody does not have to ration care, where somebody does not have to have healthcare tied to their jobs and be trapped because of that. We clearly need that system now more than ever. Uh, we need to go back to making sure that we are, we're not muzzling scientists and experts anymore, that we shouldn't have folks and policies in place that ignore and silence scientists and truth and reality um, in some way, shape or form. We need to go back and we need to make sure that we are collectively and decisively putting out policies like Green New Deal against climate change, because that is here and it is getting worse in the next decade. And if we don't do something about this, these pandemics are just becoming more frequent. And we are. it's not a matter of if another public health crisis happens, it's a matter of when at the end of the day. So we need to be making sure that at the least that we have a plan for mitigating effects of climate change. And that includes things like public health crises like this. Uh, we need to make sure that to be able to do any of these policies, we need to reduce the influence of corporate money in politics. We need to figure out how to end Citizens United, either with an amendment or with other ways, other policies um, to reduce that influence, because this is one of the major reasons that none of these big structural changes that we need has gone forward. We need universal paid sick leave. You need better child care. We need, in an essence, a stronger social safety net. And it's pretty clear as we are surviving and doing our best to get through this pandemic crisis, I think the need for this is clearer now more than ever. And the conversations that we're having with folks who are actually well and healthy and are thinking about this, I think it's a dawning realization that we need to have, we need to have a bigger changes. This is a very weird sidebar. I mean, I hope you'll forgive me. How did you become a neuroscientist? <laughs> what what put that goal inside your head? What was your education process like? Uh, did you go for it in a straight shot? Were there hurdles along the way? Can you talk a little bit about your your medical yeah. expertise? Sure. No, I'm happy to. Um, I love science. I've loved science uh, since I was the beginning. Um, younger, 
thought I was going to be an astronaut. And at the time, the only way was, you know, through uh, being a pilot, etc. Then I got glasses. And that was the, you know, crushing end of my dreams there. <laughs> I've always been science. Um, and <laughs> Yeah, no. when I went to college, I actually uh, thought briefly that I've always been interested in behavior and uh, how people act the way they do and why. Um, and I was really just interested in psychology, and I was always interested in in our bodies and our processes. And so that just kind of came together uh, with the idea of you know of neuroscience and how our brain controls uh, what we do. And I found that utterly fascinating when I was uh, studying in in college. Um, I knew I didn't want to be a medical doctor, um, despite the fact that culturally as an Indian woman, uh, you know, there are only, and I will joke about this, uh, but I mean, it's rooted in reality. Um, When I was growing up, three paths, right? You either became a medical doctor, you became an engineer, you know, you became a lawyer, went into business, right? Like, and so somebody like me, who was like, no, uh, none of those things are are what I want to do. I want to do research. And I want to be a scientist um, was actually a rebellion. You were still an extremely high level education. It's not like you wanted to start a rock band. (laughs) (laughs) You wanted to be a rapper, I think it'd be a very different conversation with your parents. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, this is the point, right? Like being in a society that's so patriarchal, it really puts these like limits where I couldn't at the time even fathom the idea of, you know, of being able to rebel even more than saying I want, I mean, frankly, I'm a little tone deaf. So rock band would not be something that I would be at at all. But, um, (laughs) but, you know, that possibility really wasn't, wasn't there either to your point, right? Um, Not rule out becoming a rapper. I'll just say that. But okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do like poetry. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, it's happening. This is the start of something. Yeah. To be clear, our podcast is uh, unanimously in favor of rapper slash political figures. Yes. Those are my goals. You didn't say good rap. You just said rap. Oh, you don't got to be good. Just try. Yeah. Just just work on it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Look, everybody sucks at everything at first. At one point, you were a baby and couldn't pick your head up. You've come so far. <sighs> <laughs> it's true it's absolutely true i'm gonna you know i suck all day long i fail uh and i'm actually fairly proud of them i mean you can't uh, to be honest you can't be a scientist without being failing at things that's really like 98 percent of being an experimental scientist it's just failing and just being okay um with failing and, and you know picking yourself up figuring out what to do so yeah so to answer your question was it a straight shot um, I took a year after college to think about it a little bit more, um, and I actually ended up working in a research lab. And just I, I just loved it, loved the whole process, loved asking questions, and um, it was the one place where being pesky and asking why and you know what does this mean wasn't irritating or you know or I could channel that irritating you know that irritating tendency into something active. Um, so yeah, I applied to school. Um, I went. I was lucky enough to go to uh, Penn, which has this really fantastic, uh, you know, neuroscience program, um, and I just loved it. I loved doing science, but academia and science have so many barriers, um, particularly when you are 
woman. Uh, and it's better than most, don't get me wrong. Um, and particularly when you're a person of color, uh, and particularly when depending on your socioeconomic status, it's not always talked about, but it is difficult um, to be in graduate school and to have debt. I mean, obviously, we talk about that a lot more now. Um, and to be able to pursue something um, that not everyone is able to do. Um, so I feel really fortunate to have had the opportunity to, to do that. And I think all of my training in in being a scientist um, is not something that I can ever turn off. It's very data oriented, right? It's very oriented on the evidence for this, what's the evidence for that. But I think my experience of being an immigrant, my experience of being a woman in science, you know, just, just part of a minority population, I think in multiple ways, gives me an interesting perspective because what, what I always marry that with is I always question the assumptions, right? I always question where you got the data. Like, what was the question you asked to get that data? Did you ask the right question? And so I think that serves me well in politics um, and in making policy decisions, right? Because someone comes in and says, here's the data for this. But it's like, well, yeah, but did you ask the right questions? (laughs) Did you make sure that you're including the right groups? And did you make sure that you're including the right perspectives? Um, And so, you know, that's something that I'm always striving to do. And I think that's just something that, my training as a scientist helped me see a little bit more. So, and also science is cool, people. <laughs> I uh, actually, fun fact, have a background in cognition. So I'm right there with you. Oh, that's awesome. I know you were just talking about the way uh, your scientific background sort of influences the way you approach problems now, which ditto, we just became best friends. But also, yes. um, you know, when you talk <laughs> about, uh, you know, this philosophy of, accepting failures and learning from failures and asking the right questions. Like, do you think that that is something that we can be helping our up and coming politicians get better at? And um, like, what, what do you think we need to be doing to get more of that in office, you know, beyond you who obviously will be elected? <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I think we as a society just need to be much more concentrate a lot more on whether somebody is you know, what values they have, where they're trying to go with those values, right? And yes, all things being equal, understanding they have integrity, understanding that, you know, they're they're coming at it with the perspective of helping people. Um, I think that uh, this sounds silly, but being open-minded and having those conversations, um, as difficult as they are, are kind of what we need to do. Um, And I feel as if, especially after the 2016 elections, I think people, you, you know, what I felt the most and what felt like it hurt the most um, after the 2016 election was that there was just sort of silence for a while. Things were happening around the, you know, around my community where where we had, you know, comments that were coming out. And there were just, there were silence from folks. Um, people didn't feel comfortable commenting. People didn't feel comfortable saying, you know, standing up for what they thought was right. People didn't feel saying, wait, I don't understand. Can you help explain why, you know, what what your experience was like? That curiosity, right? Of and, and that that kind of sense of not you're wrong, but really like help me understand experience um, is something that scientists have, and it's, it comes from a position of humility and 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 really curiosity. And I think that we need more of that, right? We need people who are able to ask those questions. And you know, I think I strive for that, right? Like for me, look, it hasn't been easy to be 
you know, on council and trying to pursue and, um, you know, and have initiatives that deal with uh, climate change mitigation, which I'm really proud um, that I've been able to lead in my town. Um, So from things like the plastic bag ban, um, which I led on to, I'm really actually proud of this renewable energy aggregate thing program that we have in Glen Rock. And so what that is, is every single household in, um, in our town had default has 100% clean energy now because of a particular consortium or aggregate consortium that we did. So what that means is you can imagine why that has an impact on climate change. So I might be getting a little wonky here, but really what we've done is say, great, residents, you know, all residents in Glen Rock have 100% clean energy unless you want to, of course, opt out of it. That was difficult to get to right at the end of the day. But to get to that, we had to um, have difficult conversations. And we continue to have to have difficult conversations about where, you know, why we think that's important, why I think this is important, and why people have objections towards it. So I guess at the end of the day, I think that we need a lot more curiosity and a lot more openness and really a willingness to stand up for what you believe in at the end of the day. I think that's very well put. Arti Krybik, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Will you please tell everyone out there listening right now, how do they find you on the internet, get involved with your campaign, and, you know, lend a hand somehow, digitally, of course, because we're all (laughs) social distancing still right now. That's right. And we've moved to all virtual um, organizing. Um, So I would, we would love your hashtag. Uh, team. And I will tell you, every one of them on my team are, uh, is a badass. Just, you know, I know I'm not, I don't have to curse, but I will, this deserves the badass label. Um, My team does. um, And we would love to have you join us. Um, It's artiforcongress.com. And um, my name is spelled A-R-A-T-I. So it's A-R-A-T-I, the number four congress.com on Twitter, and then F-O-R, you know, congress.com um, elsewhere as well. So we'd love to have you on board. We're doing lots of things to reach out to voters, phone banking, text banking. We'd love to have you donate. Of course, it's a grassroots movement. Um, but really, more importantly, what we're doing is so important. It is so critical. It is worthwhile to be able to form this community in this way and to really fight for the kinds of things that are not just progressive, um, but popular um, and policies that are going to make us more resilient in the future. So I'd love to have any and all of you on board. Awesome. Very well, well thank you again so much for coming on the show. This has been a wonderful hour. It flew by. So many interesting topics. And I think, you know, I'm sure everybody listening has had a very good time as well. And for those of you listening, thank you so much for listening. As always, we appreciate you and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks.